Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Scripture for this morning is the 51st Psalm. Let's read it out together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Morning, Transit Church. You guys doing all right today? All right, let's take a moment to pray, and then uh, we'll jump into our word today. Father, we're grateful, grateful for the gathering of your church, grateful for a beautiful day, uh, a hot weekend in the winter, and, uh, and for this opportunity for us to break open your word and to hear from you. And so, God, uh, our confession to, to you today is that we need you. We need you like a desert needs water, like a new day needs the sun, like a, uh, a little baby needs its mom. 
And uh, Lord, you don't disappoint. So send your spirit uh, and dwell us. We give you permission to uh, convict us where uh, we have sinned. And like David prayed, Lord, would you give us a new heart? And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So if you're just joining us, we are in a short series in the month of January, looking at the spiritual discipline of prayer as a church. Our tradition is that we uh, sort of look at spiritual disciplines to reorient ourselves as we begin a new year. And this year we're looking at Psalm 51. Uh, As we read in Psalm 51, David, the king of Israel, has done a terrible thing and he knows it. But it's actually only until his prophet, the prophet Nathan, comes to him and confronts him about what he's done that David repents. But when David repents, as as he alludes to in the psalm, his repentance was significant. I mean, David um, fully admitted what he had done. He turned away from his sin and he turned toward God with his entire self, putting himself at the mercy of God. Uh, That is the overarching perspective of this particular psalm. It's what's happening in it. When we read Psalm 51, we're reading what sounds like, what it sounds like when a person jumps into the ocean of God's grace. And that really is what's happening. David is in a world of trouble. I said it last week. He's, He's not just caught between a rock and a hard place. He's under the rock and people are jumping up on it, you know. Uh, to his own demise. But, but Psalm 51 is not just for people who are in trouble and, and don't know it and then come to the realization of that. Psalm 51 is not just for people who fail and then are consumed with their guilt. Psalm 51 is really for everyone. And that's why it's in our Bibles. It's for all of us. No matter where you come from, no matter how badly you've messed up at a season in your life, um, all of us are as desperate in our lives towards our relationship with God as David is here in regards to needing God's mercy. And so that's the beautiful thing that we see here. David needs God's mercy, and he asks for it. And what does God do? God grants him that mercy. We're starting our year looking at Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 not only helps us know what to do when we are troubled, when we mess up, when we sin, it informs our prayers, and that's the, the, the vantage point that we're looking at this psalm, from, this psalm from. How can it help us know how to pray, but also how can it inform our prayer? We're calling this series Praying Like Real People. I think David is praying like a real person here. There's no fluff in it. He's just uh, being himself and, and being really kind of transparent. We're not unpacking the whole psalm. We're just looking at uh, really, four petitions, four colon, there's a technical word in it, which are just sublines of verses of the psalm. Uh, I happened upon this uh, reading the, a devotional based upon the Book of Common Prayer, and in it, it laid out these four petitions uh, inclusive of Psalm 51, almost like a prayer. And uh, it caught my attention. Not only that, it became a, it's become a liturgy for my life. I prayed in the morning, I prayed a couple times during the day. As things go along, and I thought it might be helpful for all of us. Uh, perhaps by the time we finish this and say it enough, some of you will have committed it to memory. Here are the petitions. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's what we looked at last week. This week we're going to look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, you guys have read this. You've recited it. Some of you have memorized it. 
others of you, I mean, we actually sang it this morning. We sang a shame and shame version uh, of, this, of this song. This is a, a, a prayer, a simple prayer. But there's some important theology behind what David is asking God to do. And so we would be careful to, to make sure that we understand that theology because uh, we can only understand what David is doing and saying in this song if we understand the theology of the heart behind it. And it really has all to do with our hearts. I want to uh, start today by introducing you to what the Bible says about the heart. A little bit of theology. And then from that, we're going to apply um, how this psalm and what uh, David is praying to God about his heart might inform our prayers in this petition. So firstly, two things the Bible tells us about our heart. The first is God cares about your heart. Said differently, your heart is what God mainly cares about. God cares a lot about like all of you, right? But he really, really, really does care about your heart. At least that's what the Bible informs us. I think you guys know this. When I say heart, I'm not talking about your physical heart, your, your, the organ in the middle of your body that pumps blood. I'm talking about uh, really your, like the, the inside of you. I'm talking about the center of your person. One commentator said it like this. It's both the bullseye of who we are and it's the control panel to our system. I often use Paul Tripp's definition. Paul Tripp says, the heart is the central causal core of your personhood. That sounds just so dynamic. I like how Paul Tripp came up with that definition. One other commentator said, the heart is the metaphysical organ that pumps life into everything else that we think and do. You've heard some people talk about the soul. Others have talked about even like, I got a gut feeling about something. When they say that, oftentimes what they're talking about is the heart, this thing inside of me that sort of orients my life and controls uh, what I do and what I say. So the idea of the heart is that humans have this unseen causer in them, causer, things that, I mean, making me do the things that I do, think the things that I say, this inner self, this energy at the center of who we are. And this is not a new idea. This is an ancient idea that's thousands of years old that goes probably as, as, as long as there's been people on the earth. You've heard about the heart in music and literature and, and romance no, novels. And I mean, it's, it's in our normal vernacular. We, we're always talking about the heart. Someone might say the heart of the ocean or the heart of a problem to suggest that something is at the center of a thing. Think about the thousands of songs that you hear that are centered on your heart and mine. Don't go breaking my heart. Right? Right? I don't even know who sang that. Who, who sings that? Y'all don't know either. Heartbreaker. Da, da, da. I just wrote these off the top of my head. Uh, listen to your heart. Da, 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 da. I don't know any of these where I just know the heart part, right? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. And this is my favorite right here. Where do broken hearts go? Whitney Houston, the late great Whitney Houston. We could, we could like, there's like a million songs that talk about the heart, right? And each one is getting at that part of us that makes us feel or say or do the things that we do. We're always thinking and talking and, you know, sort of meandering about our hearts. We also see this in the Bible, right? When the Bible refers to the heart, the reference is primarily someone's inner central self, that which is most basic and fundamental part about who we are. And that's why the heart is important. So when the Bible uses language like 
from the heart. We see that in Matthew 15, verse 18. But what comes out of my mouth from my heart, it, it's, that's what defiles a person. Or in Deuteronomy 4.39, take it to heart. Know this well then, take it to heart right now, God says. God is in heaven above, God is on earth below, he is, only, uh, he is the only God there is. Or this well-known verse in, uh, in Proverbs, Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, with all your heart is the emphasis there. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Similarly, uh, the great commandment, Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. What's the commonality in all of these verses? God is talking about things that find their source in the best, most truest part of us, and he's uh, commending to us to operate from that perspective. The heart is the unseen center of who you are. It's your truest part. But it's also what influences you. Here's the wisdom from Proverbs again, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. What's interesting about this uh, particular verse, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are Solomon uh, giving away his wisdom to his youngest sons. And so here's, what, here's the wisdom of, of, of Solomon to his sons in this moment. He's saying, your heart is a source from which everything else in your life flows. And so firstly, know that, be aware of that, but know that you're operating in that way in the things that you do and the things that you say. Jesus taught the very same thing. Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says to the Pharisees, and this is not a kind word that he's saying, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever heard somebody say, uh, somebody else made me do that? Or, uh, or any of you old enough to remember the, uh, the, the adult sitcom, uh, Flip Wilson? Flip Wilson's famous words, the devil made me do it. Jesus is saying, uh-uh, the devil didn't make you do that. You're doing that of your own volition. So what we're saying and doing uh, out here actually comes from somewhere in here. It may be articulated from your mouth. You may do it with your hands, but the source of our actions and the things that we say is coming from inside of us. Every action that we commit is connected back to our hearts, esteeming that action or what it intends as valuable. And so what I'm saying is, bottom line, ultimately, we're doing what our hearts want us to do. And so here's where this is going. Your heart is in control. Your heart is in control of you. And so in opposition to all the songs that we sing, the fiction novels that we read, the TV that we watch that's encouraging us to follow our hearts, the Bible is warning us about the completely opposite. The Bible is saying, uh-oh, you need to be warned that your heart being in control of you is not necessarily always a good thing. In fact, it can be a problem, which leads us to the second thing the Bible tells us about our hearts. Guess what? Your heart's messed up. So if you're new to Christianity, if you are perhaps here and not a Christian, I mean, for me to say that, that might mess you up a little bit, right? You're just like, well, I'm a good person, and that means I got a good heart. The Bible would suggest otherwise. In fact, the, the, one of the truest, clearest truths in the Bible is that your heart is messed up. In the story of the Bible, God creates the world. He calls it very good. And we don't know the, the amount of time that comes from the point that God uh, rested on the seventh day and things started to go bad. It could have been days. It could have been decades. 
But by the time we get to Genesis 3, I mean, everything starts falling apart, right? Adam and Eve do the very thing God said not to do. And from that, sin ensues into our world. And it really gets bad by Genesis 6. And here's what God says in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Those aren't kind words. And, and so this, the, the interesting thing about that is the, these words, this verse is the event that precedes the flood. The flood where God calls it to rain 40 days and 40 nights, and God basically takes all of his creation and does away with it, except for Noah and his family and two of every animal that were on the earth, which, from which he starts over with. And so no sooner does the human race start that God declares that human wickedness, wickedness is uh, completely rampant. And while the deception came from Satan, Satan is the one that came and deceived Eve, the action that she and Adam committed came from their hearts. Eve was the one that took of the fruit, saw that it was pleasing to the eye. She's the one that ate it and gave it to her, her husband they corroborate that, corroborated that event, and though they were deceived by an external actor, it was the intention of their hearts that uh, initiated it. So fast forward in the story of redemption. Many years later, God calls a prophet by the name of Jeremiah, and through that prophet, God talks a whole lot about the heart. And this might be probably the most intense thing that we can read in the whole Bible about the heart. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, if you didn't, don't know this, this verse is in the Bible. The Bible is telling us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, and none of us really understand our hearts like we think we do. I'm not trying to be political, but this one biblical truth in Jeremiah deconstructs an entire generation of self-esteem psychology. It dismantles the foundation of gender dysphoria. And for many of you in this room, it pretty much ruins all the pop music you listen to. Right? Because it's telling you that you're good, but more importantly, it's telling you that your heart is good and your heart has good intentions. And Jeremiah says, uh-uh, that ain't the truth. Because according to Jeremiah, which is, means according to the Bible, the human heart is in such terrible shape that it cannot be trusted. The heart left to itself is not something that we should follow. Puritan John Owen says this. He says, be acquainted with thine own heart, though it be deep, search it, though it be dark, inquire unto it, though, uh, though it give all sins other names than what are their due, believe it not. Those are uh, that's language that we don't use a lot, but uh, simplistically, uh, John Owen is, says, you cannot trust your heart. His diagnosis of the heart can, can really wreck everything that you've ever thought about your good intentions. John Owen is saying our hearts are that messed up, which is a problem because God loves your heart. God cares about your heart. First Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man, sees on the, man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Now, this is an interesting verse because God is saying this about David. He's saying this. So uh, God sent Samuel uh, 
to uh, Jesse and, and the sons of Jesse, looking for the guy that he would anoint to be the next king. Samuel is looking at all the, the, the sons of Jesse and doesn't see anyone that, uh, that he thinks in his own mind's eye would, uh, would be the right king. And God tells him this verse, don't look at what you think is in, in terms of an outward appearance. Uh, the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord was talking about David, the same David that commits this heinous sin and, uh, and has a bad heart. God cares about our truest self, the self that he sees better than anyone else. He cares about what you desire and what you love, not just about how you look or how you're perceived. God's not impressed by our posing. And in fact, the heart, the, the, the heart farthest away from God is the one that poses, the one that pretends and, and paints this picture of who we are on the outside, but our insides aren't really matching that. Jesus quotes Isaiah in, in Matthew 15, and he condemns the Pharisees for this very thing. Here's what he says, Matthew 15, verse 7. You hypocrites, whenever you start a sentence like that, it, it, those aren't kind words, right? You, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, you might look good on the outside, but your actions, which are coming from your heart, don't please God, and God is going to reject you. The psalmist, Psalm 104, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. The wisdom of Proverbs against uh, Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. I think David understood this when he wrote Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he's confessing, Lord, I am, I am the hypocrite. I'm like these Pharisees who on the outside look okay, but on the inside are, are, are dark and, and evil. He's saying, not only am I the hypocrite, I'm the one with the heart that's both perverse and, and arrogant. But David's not alone here because we're human. This is the plight of, of all of humanity. We're no different, which means... We're all in, in kind of a sort of a impossible situation. We're stuck. Our hearts are what God mainly cares about. Our hearts are terribly broken. Therefore, the absolutely only thing that, that we could do about our hearts is to do the exact same thing David does in this psalm. And what does David do in this psalm? He asks God for a new one. He asks God for a new heart. So that's what's happening in this petition. That's the theology of the heart that I wanted to talk to you about. And you only have to remember the backstory of what David did with Bathsheba, the lying, the deceit, the, the instigation that leads to murder of Uriah. And then he tries to cover all that up and, and go on in life as if it, does, it didn't even happen. And so this, this petition, these words from David, really are a last-ditch last effort for him to, to salvage his own life and his relationship with God. And for us, it can be a last-ditch solution for really our greatest problem. And so the question I want to answer in the rest of our time is, is simply this. How could this petition, David praying that God would create in him a, a clean heart, inform our prayers? I want to offer you three things. When we pray... Like David, we should pray for God to create, not just to readjust. We should pray for God to fix me first. 
All right, so when you think that, you're, saying, you're talking about you, not me, right? <laughs> and thirdly, pray to God and no one else. So because of what the Bible says about our hearts, here's the first thing that I think this petition can inform us in regards to our prayers. Pray to God to create, not just to readjust. The, the first word, the first verb in verse 10 in this psalm is the word create, which happens to be the very first verb in all of our Bible. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, right? He created the heavens and the earth. And that's the same word, same meaning that David is using in Psalm 51. The word create refers to the divine act of making something that exists out of nothing, right? When God created in Genesis 1, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. It means that before God spoke and anything happened, in the act of creating, there was nothing that existed prior to that. And so God, when he's creating the earth in Genesis, doesn't stretch out his hand like Yoda and bring from the far corners of the galaxies all those things that have been previously assembled and then collate them together to create the world that we live in. Why doesn't he not do that? Why does he not do that? Because those things don't exist. Creation exists because God spoke it into being. There's nothing that exists outside of creation save God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was no created thing. God spoke and created the universe. And in that same way that God created the world out of nothing, David is asking God to create in him a clean heart. Lord, I don't have it. I don't think it would be right for you to take what I have, all this messed up evil stuff within me, and just reform it. Can you God, give me a new one? That's what he's asking God to do. His prayer is, is probably one of the most humble prayers that we could ever read in the Bible, because he's being honest about his, about his own assessment of himself. He understands how, how sinful and broken and warped his soul is. He's confessing that to God and asking God, Lord, don't just readjust my heart. I need a new one. And so do we. We need for God to create in us a new heart. We need for God to speak and to create in us the hearts that we're supposed to. Thank God that's what he does. If, you're, uh, uh, if you have faith in Jesus, if you've trusted him for the salvation of your soul, that's what the Bible says God has done for you. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes this connection between God's work in creation and God's work in salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, I love this verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What is Paul referencing there? He's talking about what happens in creation, that God speaks and light comes out of darkness. Let light, come out of, let light shine out of darkness, God says has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I would add uh, probably a verse that many of you have memorized at some point in your life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then I love verse 18. It says, all this is from God. Why does it have to come from God? Because we can't do this in and of ourselves. So like the same kind of work that God does in creation He's doing that work in our hearts, making it new. Just like God created the universe, we need him to create our hearts, not just move things around. That's the first thing we should pray. Here's the second thing. Pray for God to fix you first. 
Notice I didn't say me because you guys are going to think, oh, our pastors need to be fixed, which is true, but so do you. And so here's what, what's going on. David is praying for God to do something in him. All right. I'm a little thrown back by my words, fix me. All right. We don't want God to just fix me, right? What I'm talking about is God applying the, the grace of redemption to our lives. It just sounds better for my sermon if I say fix me, right? He says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And, and that sounds kind of basic to pray that. Many of you have prayed that. But that kind of praying really is not easy. Chances are, this is not our default mode when we encounter difficult circumstances throughout the day in our lives. I mean, I think if we're all honest, most of the time when things don't go our way, when uh, you might be having a, a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, perhaps even a bad year, I don't know if we all stop and ask God to work in us. Don't we, don't we rather ask God to change our circumstance or, or change the person that's causing me the problems that I think I'm having? Like, like, do something with that. Do something with them. But we oftentimes don't ask God to do something with us, to change us. Everybody has that friend. Perhaps you are that friend. That it seems they bounce around from job to job. And every job they have, at some point, they leave it because there's something wrong with it. Something goes wrong. Or perhaps it's a person that goes from relationship to relationship. And there's always a point where they get to in that relationship that something goes wrong. And they attribute that to the other person that they're dealing with. And so they keep moving around, doing this over that, because every situation ends up in a problem. And at some point, don't you just want to look at your friend and say, uh, have you ever stopped to consider that the issue might be you? That the problem that you're having in your situation actually might be you? I think that's something that we all need to consider. But let me save you the time. Let's shake your head like this. I haven't even asked the question, but the answer is yes. The problem is you, right? That, that applies to all of us. Part of the problem is all of us, that we should be, uh, that, that's why we should pray to God to fix us first. Before we, before, we want, before we want God to make all the corrections out there, we need God to make some corrections in here, that he would apply the grace of redemption to our hearts. God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you do a work in me first? I think this is the truth, at least for my life, perhaps yours too, for pretty much everything that we encounter on a daily basis, our greatest need is not a change in our situation. It's a change in me. And David is praying that way. Here's the third and last thing that informs our prayers. We should pray to God and no one else. Pray to God and no one else. This is not intuitive. We might not admit this, but this is often how we think prayer works. That if I really want God to do something, then I just got to meet God halfway. This is the person that says, God helps those who help themselves. And if we're not saying that, we're saying this. God does his part. I'll do my part. If you're a parent... I don't know if we do this anymore, but I mean, this was the, the mantra growing up. Ten, ten, two or three decades ago, 
uh, to teach kids a work ethic. You do your part, God will do the rest. And that sounds good, that we try to meet God halfway. And I don't want to overstate this, but that's not really how prayer works. In fact, language like that can be toxic. It might seem like we're praying, but really we're just consulting our own wills and trying to cut a deal with God. We're, we're praying, but we're thinking at the same time, okay, I'll do this, but God, you, you do that. So we're divvying up the work that needs to be done. We're telling God, all right, God, this is the part that I'm going to agree with you that I'm going to do. And then we're expecting God to come along and do what we ask that might, of the remaining things that might need to be done. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying there is not work to be done. There's, there's plenty of places in our Bible. In Paul's writing in the Apostle James that says, faith and work, faith and work go together. There are things, obviously, for us to do. But God works through means. He works through means of grace. The preaching of God's word, the scriptures that you read, the sacraments that we'll enjoy here after our service. He works and speaks to all of you as you do the one another's of scripture. He works through us, but the understanding, but understanding that God works through means is different than trying to meet God halfway because the Bible would condone us that God doesn't meet us halfway. God comes all the way, right? He comes all the way. That's the entire message of the Bible. That's the gospel. The gospel is God coming to us all the way in the person and the work of Jesus. Why? Because it's the only way. If Jesus doesn't come all the way to you on your behalf, then you're not saved. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were without hope, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. What's Paul saying? He says, God speaks and calls us from death to life. And so when we pray, we're praying for God himself and no one, God to, praying to God himself and no one else. Jesus is the only one that can bring a dead person back to life. He's the one who created us new, and he is the one who has to do it. I think that's why Augustine said this. He says, my entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. He says that in his book, Confessions. And so what does it sound like for, for real people to pray? Firstly, it sounds like what we prayed last week. Lord, would you open my lips and, and fill my mouth with praise that I might declare it? I'm like the prophet Isaiah. I see myself in light of your glory. And I'm reminded of my, the, the, the sin of my life. So would you take the coal and cleanse my lips as I pre present myself to me? And Lord, the coal that I get to enjoy as a new covenant believer is, is Jesus dying in my place for my sin. He's the one that cleanses me by his, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And so as you open my lips and allow me to declare praise, I know that it's only because of Jesus that you allow me to join in on this, on this eternal praise that's going on amongst the seraphim and all the creation as we worship you. So thanks for letting me join the chorus of those who get to praise you today. So whatever comes, Lord, would you receive my praise? So whatever my day might entail, would you open my lips that 
my mouth might declare your praise. And then, Lord, there's this heart of mine. There's this heart that's envious, that's devious, that does all kinds of things that I don't want it to do. You know all about my heart because you see all of everything about me. You know that I need a new heart. And so before I take my next breath, would you, would you do that for me? Would you create in me a clean heart? I need you to change me from the inside out. My biggest problem is not my, my current circumstance. My biggest problem is me. My biggest problem is my heart. And if you, Lord, don't come and give me a new one, if you don't come and change me, if you don't do a work in me, then I'll be undone. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. I think that's kind of how David is praying in this psalm. More importantly, that's what it means to pray like real people. Amen? All right, right where you're sitting, we're going to put this into practice. We're going to do a little uh, prayer and response. If you could put these words up, we'll save these right where we are. Can you remove the Psalm 51 there, Zoe? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Say this with me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and please me from my sin. We confess our fickle, sinful hearts, hearts that are hypocritical, hearts that are perverse and arrogant. That is wrong. We need your forgiveness and absolution. We need new hearts. The Lord has put away all your sins. Jesus offers us all new hearts. Thanks be to God. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Lord, our hearts are fickle. Sometimes we think and do things that we don't want to do. And whereas we are prone to say someone or something is making us do those things, sometimes we even attribute it to our arch enemy, the devil. The reality is it's coming from within. So change us. Do what we can't do in and of ourselves. Create in us a new heart. Renew in us a right spirit. And then as David proclaims, but we'll go about rejoicing. Rejoicing in you and all that you do. Thank you for Jesus who challenges, challenges us just like the prophets did of old. Calls us hypocrites. Calls us arrogant. But the thing that Jesus does is he dies in our place for our sin. He gives us the spirit. He puts himself in us. And with that, he makes us new. Thank you, Jesus, that you make us new, that you incline, that you incline us to yourself by your Spirit. And then even as we sin, Lord God, you're still changing us. Pray this in your great name. Amen. And amen.